0: Hey everybody, welcome to Grounded Truth, a podcast where we gather some of the world's most influential data scientists, machine learning practitioners, and innovation leaders for conversations in the most relevant topics in AI today. I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success here at Watchful, a machine teaching platform for data-centric AI. You can try Watchful for free at www.watchful.io. And if you like our podcast or any of our content, please like, subscribe, follow on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere where you can find podcasts today. Joining us today is Kendra Little, She has most recently worked as a staff technical product manager at Stack Overflow, where in addition to her product-related role, she created and led an AI guild, a community of practice at Stack Overflow. And I would describe her experience as having worked through the entire data stack, from sysadmin to analyst to product to developer advocate, and even finding some time to found her own company. Thanks so much for joining us, Kendra.
1: I am really excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. And also with us is my co-founder and Watchful CEO, Cheyenne Mahanti. Hey, Cheyenne. Hello. Good to be back. So today I want to talk a little bit about uh, database DevOps. Uh, One, kind of what is it and what does a product manager do in database DevOps? And uh, we've, as I think a common theme of a lot of our podcasts have been the rise of large language models or foundation models in general. And I'm really curious to get your thoughts and uh, potential ideas for applications and how you see the uh, database DevOps uh, workflows potentially being impacted by large language models, and yeah. so I'm super excited to dig in. So maybe a good place to start uh, for those that are unaware: what is database DevOps? DevOps.
1: I I love it. It's a great question, and so it sounds it sounds somewhat fancy when we say database DevOps, but at its core, um, the the basic idea between database DevOps is. How do we treat databases in the same way or in similar ways that we treat applications in regards to getting the code into version control, being able to automate as much of the deployment as possible? understanding what what changes were checked in and committed, what changes are in process by being able to uh, observe that, either uh, looking at past deployments or looking at different branches in a code base, and basically being able to integrate working with databases into a lot of the same ways that we work with uh, applications. And although this sounds simple, it's actually really hard for a lot of people because the way that databases kind of evolved in engineering culture. I I was lucky enough when I first got a job with databases to start at a company where they did put the database code into version control. So that was the way I learned and I thought it was normal. And as soon as I left that company and went to other places, I found, hey, folks aren't doing this. They're taking backups of the database with all of the data in it. They have these, these huge backups. And if they need to know what did the code look like last week, Sometimes they have to restore hundreds of gigabytes or terabytes or or huge databases to see, hey, what what did the code in the database look like last week? Did someone accidentally deploy something? Uh, So folks run into all sorts of problems doing manual deployments to databases that cause all sorts of problems. So at the heart of database DevOps is just this idea that database code is also code and we should treat it as such, we should version it. We should uh, isolate it and test it in, in different environments, like we do with application code. Um, and we should we should take advantage of how automation can let us identify failure early on before we uh, actually release code to users. So, um, yeah, in a sense, database DevOps is just DevOps, but specifically saying, <laughs> no, 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 we're. We actually mean including the database because it's, it's still very, very often just completely left out. And uh, I'm
2: also really curious, um, c- can you articulate kind of like the surface area of what you consider database code? So are we uh-huh. are we just talking like migrations and stuff like that? Like w- walk me through some of that.
1: Yeah. That, so that's an interesting question. Because at first, when you think about database code, a lot of what we think about is, uh, maybe we're using some type of stored procedure, right? Maybe we're putting some code that that carries out actions in the database, which that's that's part of it. Not everyone even uses those, right? Some people put all their business logic elsewhere and not not in the database, and that's fine too. But the schemas of our tables what what how many tables do we have? What are they named? Uh, what columns do they have? What data types do those columns have? What indexes do we have? Uh, what types of indexes do we have? Is this a columnar <laughs> table? Is this a, a row store table? And these will vary, of course, You know the types of properties you can have will vary, of course, by uh, database providers. So that the fact that Oracle SQL is different than Postgres SQL is different than Microsoft's flavor of SQL does make understanding these a little tricky because although there's definitely similarities, there's all these little bitty implementation details across them. So totally. it really is. Um, every command you run against a database can be considered part of this. Because for some changes, I need to change the data too. It's not just data definition scripts. It's also database modification scripts, which isn't obvious at first. But let's say I have an existing table. You know, Maybe it has a million rows, which ain't that much anymore, but it has rows. And I want to add a column. I want to make sure that column always it shouldn't it shouldn't allow empty values or nulls. But the table already has rows in it. So when I first add the column before it has data, I need to it needs to allow null values at first. So what I need to do is I need to add the column in one way. I need to populate the data and then I need to change the property of the column which means now there's a data modification script in the middle where I'm either updating data based on other things or I'm doing something to populate all those rows so I can eventually say, no, 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 this column has to have a value in every single row. So it really has to do with every command that you need to run to change the state of a database. There is, of course, different ways to think about this. Some folks say, no, 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 the schema, is really what matters, even if you're having to run database modification cans. Is the schema that is the definition. This is kind of a theoretical difference. The truth is, you need to be able to manage both. <laughs>
2: sure, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So, and so oh, go yeah, ahead. It, and and so uh, and tell me a little bit about your role as at your most recent role as a product manager in database DevOps. You know, kind of how are you managing those concerns? What are, what keeps you updated today, and how are you like addressing those primary problems?
1: Yeah. So I, I got to work as a product manager at a company called Redgate. And I don't work there anymore. They're a fantastic company. Um, but I got to think a lot about how do people using different database platforms interact with their databases and what will help them interact with databases more smoothly? What will help them make fewer mistakes and do you know spend less time? So I got to talk to users and work with great co-workers who helped uh, talk to users across different platforms. And we found really, really interesting things. We found that customers who work with different types of database platforms tend to have very different preferred workflows or different ways to think about how do you uh, migrate or upgrade a database. So for example, developers who worked a lot with the Microsoft database platform, they when, when, when shown, you know, example UIs are asked to work through a scenario, what we found is what, what often works norm for them is they want to kind of, if they're thinking about making a change, they want to kind of explore it, maybe try a couple different things with a development database at first, right? Because they might, a lot of times when you're working on a change, you may evolve your thinking, right? At first it seems simple, but then you're like, oh no, there's a foreign key. I need to also, mo- there's, you know, it's a little more than I thought it was. So they like to poke at the database, And get it so it behaves like they want, and then they like to think about, okay, what is the script that gets me from where it started to where it is now? We found that folks who work with Postgres databases and Oracle databases think about it quite differently. They might poke at the database a little bit, but they're much more thinking about, I want to think about this in a step-by-step ordered plan, what is the things I need to do in the order I need to do and I'm going to write a migration script and I'm going to get them in these changes in the proper order and in thinking about like why and and these these users wanted very different workflows because of this different style and in thinking about why it happened it's it's really about the nature of tooling and the nature of people who use tooling because Microsoft invested in their database products early on they invested in a lot of tooling that made it very very easy to look at a database and just say, I want to script this thing out. You just right click and say, script this thing out. And then they also started investing in tooling that they eventually made either free or nearly free, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it was either is fairly easy to access that would let you even say, I want to compare this, this database, maybe my target database to my development database. And I just want you to generate a change script that takes the development database to this or it takes the target database to the state of the development database and this ended up making things a lot faster for people because a lot a lot of developers don't they need to modify databases but they don't work with them full time like they have a lot of cognitive load they have a lot of things to keep up with so something that saves them time even if it's not perfect even if it has weird edge cases that don't work very attractive so then vendors started building tooling that did similar things in the Microsoft ecosystem. And they promoted this whole way of working that didn't happen in other database environments as much. And so they grew up with very kind of different expectations about how do you, uh, what is the role of automation. And the folks no. who work a lot with the Microsoft products have a higher expectation of this code will be auto-generated for me and are more comfortable with that idea than uh, the folks who have not grown up in that sort of product e- ecosystem, which I, I find very, very interesting. And now that we have all these new ways of generating code, <laughs> it it makes me think about, hey, where where will this take us? <laughs> and will it take off in, in very similar ways and patterns?
0: Yeah, and hearing you talk about like the core problems, it's just a, a lot of uh, uh, both, I think, empathy, I think, for the end user and the kind of the experience uh, as in data science. What we have found, or if there's anything that I found talking to probably over a thousand data scientists at this point, if there's one standard is that there are no standards. Everybody has a different workflow, tool chain, even ideological approach and methods for how they can solve what would seem to be relatively standardized problems. And uh, the big movement of mlops and you know by extension machine teaching what we're promoting is i think exactly as you stated take it everything you'd mentioned that we've uh grown accustomed to and developed over 40 50 plus years of uh application software development in things like version control uh, incredible com- you know autocomplete editors environments that just auto generate code or whatever it might be uh machine teaching and mlops by extension are both working to apply those same principles, but for instead of database, you know, specifically for databases for model development. So, uh, definitely a lot of parallels in those same uh, kind of core problems.
1: Yeah, I see that it it's, there's this, we're at this point too, where it seems now a lot of folks like GitHub Copilot has recently introduced an AI chat bot that can sit next to your workflow too. So it seems like a lot of the early days that we're in, one of the early ideas is let's, let's, not, model, let's not modify the entire workflow yet, but what if we put a chat bot next to it, right? Who I can ask, hey, can you explain this code to me? Hey, can you criticize this code to me? Hey, can you uh, help me uh, rewrite this code or refactor this code in a certain way? And that, I think, is a really safe start by not, like, disrupting the entire workflow. But I am very, very curious how people will come up with new interesting workflows that are very, very different and how these will disrupt workflows that we've already had.
2: And and to Um, that point, like, what would you be reaching for, you know, as someone who's worked in this world? So, like, knowing that there's already a lot of automation tech out there for doing things like database migrations and so on, like... Where do you think the gaps are? And what do you think the right experience would be for target users being like database DevOps folks?
1: Mm, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so thinking about how... So databases are, I think, an interesting example for two reasons. They're often incredibly value valuable and incredibly sensitive because of the data they hold. Like if we accidentally do the wrong thing in the code and we make the database unavailable, often there's a big outage for customers, depending on what the database does, or there might even be data loss. It could be very expensive, right? So it's it's an interesting example for that. And then it's also an interesting example for having been uh, created separately. So what do I want? Well, people listening who are database folks are have to be like, it's crazy to want more weirdly auto-generated code to run against these databases. Well, I, I would be crazy if I was saying I want this auto-generated code and then I just want to run it against production. That that would be <laughs> that would be not, not probably the best results because any auto-generated code can have errors. So what would I like? What I what I would really like is within, within a DevOps scenario where we're using a lot of the same patterns used by you know, applications. So I have a development environment where maybe I can spin up. Uh, databases that are containerized, right? They can be flexible. So I can have my own private environment that's isolated. I would love help saying, hey, I want you to um, help me generate code that does this. I'm going to check it. I'm going to make sure it's fine. But then I'm going to deploy it and roll forward. And then I want you to generate the code for me that takes it back to the prior state in case we need that after. Yeah. And I want you to test that too and i want to be able to compare you know the schemas do all sorts of things i want to have automated help making sure it's safe making sure it does what i intend and i don't want to have to spend time especially on the undo scripts or the down scripts so there's a huge controversy in in folks who work with databases about should we should we write rollback scripts
0: mm. and there's
1: a lot of these arguments that happen over Should we roll back or roll forward? I would like to never have the roll back, roll forward argument again, (laughs) because I want it to be so easy to generate code that says, if this is a problem, this is what we'll do next. It doesn't matter if we call it a roll back or a roll forward. It honestly doesn't. But the reason people hate them so much is they don't want to spend time writing them and testing them. (laughs) <laughs> because they only use them a small percentage of the time. So so really what I would like from this is a world in which I never have to argue about rollbacks again, because we can automatically have them generated and verified so that we, if we want to roll forward with them, we can. Um, but yes, basically the ability um, to use and leverage all of the, the testing and deployment functionality just with so much less time spent on it is yeah. is what i like so really a reduction a reduction in engineer time uh to to follow these patterns and to even look at them and suggest hey you know what it would be better if you did this a slightly different way
2: yep anecdotally i uh, i've been experimenting a lot with using uh, llms for coding g- generic coding and um it's been really interesting because that's exactly how i've been using it it's less to like less to write like the core concept code that I'm trying to get because like generally speaking I can just bang that out it's about like okay here's what I'm intending to do and here's like a very quick way that I've implemented it number one like help me think through other ways that I could accomplish this like refactor it for me and then help me write tests for it Uh, that way I don't have to sit there and do that and then I can now be like in a concept verification mode of just like does this test does a set of tests actually cover all the failure cases does it not Um, is it robust is it not and then I don't have to sit there and like write all these things from like from scratch Uh, I can just rely on whatever the model gives me I I think it's really interesting to like retrofit that over a stateful like an inherently stateful thing which is like databases which is like you've got some part code and some part data Mm -hmm. and the two things are like inexorably intertwined Uh, you have like the state transitions like rolling forward rolling rolling backwards and to your point, rolling backwards happens like infrequently, but then like database population and like test environments and like shims and like all this other stuff become like really hairy because you don't necessarily want to be testing on production data, but you want to be testing on things that look similar enough to production data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like it's a long rambly way to get to the question of like, you know, I, 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 I hear and buy the argument that uh, generation of code is like a very important part of this process for database DevOps. What about generation of data? Do you see that as being valuable? And if so, how much, like, how would you compare it to like code generation, that sort
1: of thing? Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that is a fantastic point. And I think, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how. Uh, data generation plays out at a very large scale, right? Because obviously, it could be very expensive if you're generating. Like sometimes you're like, I want a database that has 50 terabytes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and generating all that could be expensive. But but many people, even I mean, I think it's I think you, you said don't want to test on production data. Many people are not allowed to yeah. use production data in their dev environments, even if they mask it. So what we've what we've got sort of. In the pre LLM, <laughs> the pre generative AI world, is there are tools to generate data and there are tools to mask data and there's various data masking or redaction technologies. But one when, when you're masking, it's very very hard to prove that it can't be reversed. Yeah. So in a lot of industries like finance and various, they just they say it's not good enough. You just can't mm. use it. You need to come up with uh, different data. And that is very, very hard to make similar, and it matters because when you're, depending on which database you're using, but for example, uh, Microsoft SQL Server, the, the size of the data, the distribution of the data, the cardinality of the data, all of these play a big factor into how the data is actually used, how the optimizer decides to create a plan to access it. Because let's say I have a massive table it might be fine to say, oh, I'm going to pick out the data. I want one row at a time if we're only getting a little bit of data out of that massive table. But if it's a tiny table, if it's like one eight KB page or something like that, we may as well just scan it all the time. Right? Yep. So this can get pretty um, sophisticated, but in order to know what the database is going to do, you do often need to have fairly representative data for certain purposes. For your integration tests, you might not need all that data, right? You might actually want a small data set to run as part of your normal automated build processes and then to use a larger data set at some point when you're checking, hey, did we screw up performance? (laughs) So you might actually want multiple different generated data sets for database DevOps, and boy, is it a pain to make those, even with tooling, but to do it column by column, having a process where people have to remember, oh, I had a new table, I have to generate data for it here and here and here. It's it's gonna kinda, it's hard to maintain. It's gonna fall apart.
2: I'm so curious, like I've seen so many different form factors already of like different ways to use LLMs. You've obviously got like the chat interface, you know, a la chat GPT. You've got, you know, the co-pilot interfaces where it's like literally sitting next to you in your IDE as you're coding. Um, but the entry points for those two things are very different, right? So mm-hmm. like in the copilot case, it's like as I'm writing code, it will pop in and you know suggest stuff to me, which is potentially interesting. But every so often I want to phrase what I'm trying to do as a question. you know like I, I want you to like, <clears throat> is this function like the most optimal? or are there other ways that I could go about doing this? Um, so I, I see value in like both types of interfaces, but that, that I also don't want to leave my IDE to like go somewhere else and like copy and paste exactly what the right context is and so on. It's so like, I guess just as a potential user of a system like that, where would you expect that interaction to live? Like, would you want it inside of your IDE? Would you want it out like in an external thing? Like,
1: talk to me about that. This is, um, my, my internal user and my internal product manager will go to war with one another because <laughs> my internal user wants it to be in the IDE of my choice all the time and the internal product manager in me says oh oh, 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 boy is that expensive to maintain and difficult and every time the ide upgrades and i'm in 18 IDEs, and i have to keep them up to date and maybe they're for different types of database platforms and it's all chaos so um the (laughs) the user in me wants a bespoke experience everywhere because it really is a big deal to users to break out of something and go have to go uh, to another interface to find it out. Um, I've seen that feedback from users. I've given that feedback myself. Um, but it, especially if you're ma- if you're building tooling that might work on many different types of database where there's so many IDEs, right? You've got JetBrains, you've got all these different vendors that do IDEs as well as open source IDEs. Uh, that I think what we're going to see is a few focused IDEs get it first where investments yep. have already been made and there's kind of competition to be had there. But I think for practical reasons, we'll start seeing sort of independent applications that can connect to a this, that, or the other thing popping up to that you can kind of maybe put the window parallel to your yep. IDE of choice. Uh, that makes eventually, sense. Yeah. Eventually what catches, I mean I think eventually what catches on and what is really useful to people will navigate into all the nooks and crannies around that technology because mm-hmm. um, yeah. it, it is more convenient.
2: I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I've, I've found myself reaching for like, you know, every time I use like chat GPT, for instance, for coding, I'm just like, oh, the most tedious part of this is figuring out what context is necessary for me to show in order for chat should be to like be able to give a good answer. Um, and like I end up having to trace through all the various relationships um, in order to like capture exactly the right amount of context and like write my prompt and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I just feel myself reaching for a tool set where it's like ideally that context is just innate and it's there and it's like easy for some automated system to just like iterate through my code base and just like find all the relevant parts and like bring them in as part of like a, you know, a conversational element, but then mm-hmm. I don't know that I want that necessarily to live as part of my IDE unless it felt like a seamless experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so yeah, I, I, I hear you on just sort of like the, the fan out of various possibilities there because like the, the seamless experience will change depending on what IDE or what editor you decide to use. Like yeah. it, Vim versus like JetBrains is going to be like two wildly different end products. Uh, so yeah.
1: Right. Well, there's another thing is that it could end up being in more than one place too. So um, one thing I was thinking about recently, um, so a lot of things, you know, like chat GPT rolls out its website where you can go and ask questions. We have uh, these assistants that are all like an individual user talks to the assistant. What if you the some of the questions you were asking not necessarily the um what's wrong with this code or could you help optimize this but hey i want to do this thing what are the different approaches i could take to do this thing or or help me generate this code in a specific way what if that actually was in some way reflected in say slack or a chat bot and your teammates could see the conversation we're having and be like oh 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 i think if you change your prompt slightly or I think if you tell it to do this particular thing, you're going to get a better output. Yep. Now This this sounds really weird at first, and this is something I wouldn't necessarily have thought of myself, but I had the ability to kind of use a chat bot in a group functionality. And what I found was it was really fun. And at, f- at first I was kind of like, uh, everybody's going to see how dumb I am. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I'm just learning Python. Like I'm really asking stupid questions. But what I found was I met people I didn't expect to meet and they helped me use the bot better and it was more fun than just talking to ChatGPT in a single window. So what if I could use these tools closer to the work I'm actually doing, but maybe also I could use them in some sort of communication tool also? Like, I think there's ways these might be used that we haven't quite thought of yet. Yeah. That could be very, very interesting and team-based. Yep. That could could actually be less isolated than the way we use them now. And I'm very, very excited about that. I don't know exactly how it would look, but I think people are going to try all sorts of wacky things.
2: Totally. There's a lot of opportunity there.
0: I really like that idea. Just from my own experience of like leveling up as a quote unquote prompt engineer, uh, for various applications, the fastest way that I've learned is through example and seeing others and like art of possible is like as soon as i see a design pattern or like a prompt pattern it immediately clicks and i feel like i just took this huge step and i know what i can do and opening up uh, one of the biggest problems in implementing or trying to implement llm based solutions in production is uh, i i kind of call it like prompt analytics but an understanding of what users are trying to do with prompts is a non-trivial problem and it seems like such an obvious thing when you say it but providing transparency across a team or individuals that are aligned on maybe a common set of tasks or even just zero to one let's all figure out how llm could be useful i think that's just trans like in terms of pace of knowledge acquisition and just general education for individuals i think that's a great great approach yeah Yeah.
1: and i i think it it could really bridge a lot of gaps between people of different skill levels with a given technology in interesting ways. And I don't want to say like junior or senior, right? Because we all have technologies we're strong in and technologies we're newer to. Um but that that ability to be like, "Oh, I see how you're prompting with this topic," right? It everyone can learn from one another regardless of different skill levels. And yeah, it can it can really have uh collaboration <laughs> benefits and offsets.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They- and that was kind of the the whole my, uh, idea behind like share GPT in the beginning, uh, just trying to get more prompts out in front of people. And I th- and clearly it was valuable. They trained a uh, whole open source models completely around it. Uh, but I think that's a really interesting design pattern, especially while everybody's just trying to figure things out. No one, very few people are really doing, in my opinion, really meaningful things in production with LLMs outside of these kind of generate and edit workflows, uh, and just more transparency and more awareness of like. Art of possible is the phrase I'll keep using. Uh, I think it's just really, really important. Yeah,
1: It's going to be a wild next five years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because I think that even while this is happening, right, all these ideas are bubbling around on all of the different use cases you could use this. There will be places where people can even start small. So like I said, that generation of rollback scripts, Hey, is there a way we could do that? Is is there a way we could do that without having to write a comparison, a bespoke comparison engine for a a, a database? Even if it's right only eighty percent of the time, if I have a good way to test it and modify it, does that matter? <laughs> if I can right. catch it, does that matter? So coming in, even at the edges on on features that are real pain points on all of these different aspects. Um, I think we will quickly start people trying, finding little ways to, to make folks' life easier. Um, one of the one, I did see someone built a, a way that you can um, easily uh, just write, and, and the, I think this functionality has been around for a while, but like it's very easy and it's open source, but to just basically uh, write English and generate a query from it. which the reason this delighted me is Microsoft back in the super old days, they had this feature called English query. Like this was like way early. They had this dream of you could write a sentence and it would generate a SQL query. And the feature got released and then very quickly removed because it didn't work very well. But, but basically what has happened is there is open source material now that lets you have better English query than was worked on very, very hard by development teams to release in a product like way back. I think it might have been before 2000 even. Um, in the old days. So it was just like like the few of us nerds who knew about that old feature were just sort of like the dream that one dev team had long ago finally came true.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, we, we've seen tons of companies that have tried to solve the problem of like English to SQL uh, in like various capacities, English to query. And it's wild that companies that weren't even trying to solve that problem ended up solving it. Uh, so it just it gives credence to like a very interesting like uh i guess paradigm shift in approach so
1: yeah anyway yeah so
0: i have a question here magic wand time machine whatever it is 5 years in the future these tools have started and have proliferated throughout the tool chain they're integrated whether it's the ide or point solutions or it in some platform whatever it is where do you see database devops exist like what is the role of a database manager what is the how do, how are what changes for how both Software, software engineers and database admins are effectively inter, uh, uh, interacting with databases in the world of LLM proliferation and kind of these tool chains.
1: So I have an answer that might be a little bit cynical, but I think it's realistic.
0: Cynical are <laughs> we're, we're, we, we love cynical here.
1: So I think that the world is not going to change for a lot of database people simply because if you haven't adapted, if you haven't started yet, on modernizing your approach to databases, if you're still using a shared database that all of the developers work with for development, and they don't have a way to independently test safely, if you don't have automated deployments, if you if you don't have the code in version control, getting from like how do you trust uh, auto-generated code from something like yep. that? Well, you're you're, pre- you're probably wise to be very wary because you can't properly put the right guardrails around it but if you're at an organization that has invested not not just in database DevOps but the whole the whole how do we smoothly frequently release changes including the database basically including a lot of things you're probably going to get to zoom a lot ahead and much more easily take advantage of the be- the tools that folks are going to be releasing in the next couple of years so um the the state of DevOps reports, I I think Google has started to do them again. But uh, when Dr. Nicole Forsgren was doing the DORA reports, they I, I read them rather religiously. <laughs> um, but those reports started pointing out that what they grouped, the data that grouped as elite performers started kind of pulling away from the other performers in terms of being able to release faster, having fewer times when they had to undo code, having fewer times when... Uh, they d- disrupted the service or caused outages. They tend they were starting to just pull away from the pack. And I think it is going to be a similar thing where those who really take releasing frequently and safely seriously, they will be using a lot of tools that reduce a lot of toil because yeah. it works well. Whereas if you have a much more uh, old old school environment, you know, from and you you haven't kind of built the foundational practices, you'll probably be doing things fairly similar to our state. Maybe you have a tool that kind of helps you generate some code. Maybe there's little things that kind of help you, but it probably won't have transformed your whole uh, working environment as much. I I do wish I saw a future where like everyone had the same awesome stuff. (laughs) Yeah. But I do think it is going to be more accessible to people who have a really uh, robust, and and ever, you know, commitment to improving their CI CD processes uh, in general. It'll be easier for them to integrate uh, b- bigger things that that make a huge impact.
0: No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I just had, as someone who hasn't read the State of DevOps report, um, I'm curious, like, what percentage would you say are those high performers, just from the hip, obviously, uh, in oh. the market versus those that are doing it, quote unquote, old school?
1: So I am terrible at remembering numbers. Uh, I'm thinking it was like fourteen percent. And by by saying a number, I'm sure someone will correct oh, me on the internet.
0: Hundred <laughs> percent, just ballpark. And I'm I'm just curious. Like I'm really looking for like almost like order of magnitude. Is it ninety percent of companies that exist out there are really just doing things the most basic and unautomated way, and it's just ten percent of absolute you know uh, big, large companies or uh, just data first companies is maybe a better way to yeah. put it that have that have really invested in that infrastructure.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot in the middle. And and I should say this, the state of DevOps reports don't ask too, too many questions about databases. They ask some questions, but, you know, kind of like networking, you know, not everyone thinks about, I think about databases all the time, but I understand that not everyone does. <laughs> um, there, there are, uh, there was a study that uh, the company I worked at did where, I, I, one year we did the survey, it was like 50-50, but then uh, in terms of putting your database into version control, uh, but then it, it did start climbing. But I was still kind of like, this number should be like 90%. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> like, we should put our code into version control, please.
0: Yeah, it, I guess my maybe my, un, my slightly less cynical take or hope, I'll, I'll leave it at hope, is that uh, that 90% is drastically lowered, and just for all of the companies between now and the next five years that are looking to maybe go from the ground up and whatever their data infrastructure and, code, uh, and application structure looks like, uh, are able to take advantage of these like, large language model-enabled uh, tooling to make their lives easier, provide a little bit more security, safety, and just uh, less toil, I, I'll, I'll uh, use your word for it, uh, than before. Yeah. So it, this has been great. I really enjoyed the conversation, Kendra. I think this is super interesting, personally for me, because as again, as, uh, someone who's never migrated to database and someone who's working with LLMs, a lot of the focus has always been around applications and like writing assistance, you know, marketing copy, sales copy, and obviously like we talked about, uh, like software development workflows. So I think it's been a really interesting take, uh, with a slight like orthogonal, uh, but slightly you know slightly similar, uh set of concepts within database uh, DevOps. So it's been great. I really enjoyed it.
1: Well, I loved talking to y'all. I, I am happy to talk about databases anytime if that's not obvious. Absolutely.
0: But yeah, I mean,
1: I should, I should also put in that um, I hope to never have to write another YAML pipeline again from scratch. I would just like to put that request out into the world that... <laughs> If all of my GitHub actions or various uh, YAML pipeline things, if I could just never have to wonder where did I put the wrong character in this file again and how do I fix it? Like that would save me days, days of my life. <laughs> so there's so many opportunities uh, that I think are just gonna make things better.
0: Well, you heard it, you put the energy out in the world and I'm sure there will be a something popping up on, on Reddit or otherwise but solving exactly that at the pace of innovation and tool tool development at this point. So really exciting. Well, great. I really enjoyed the conversation. And for everybody here, thank you for joining us. Again, uh, this is Grounded Truth. And I'm your host, uh, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success at Watchful. Again, you can try Watchful for free at www.watchful.io. And please, if you like this podcast and any of our other content, like, follow, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you can find podcasts today. Kendra, Cheyenne, thank you so much for joining us and have a great day. Thank you.
1: Thank you.